Well, good morning. Uh, if you guys were with us last week, um, obviously you, you know we're, we're going through the Old Testament together this semester. So this is our equipping class, Old Testament 1. Uh, Wes did a great job of just helping us uh, introduce us to the Old Testament and why we study it and why it's going to help us as believers just have a, a, a better idea of, of God's Word and, and of the story of redemption itself. And so we're going to just move right on into Genesis this, this week. We'll be studying Genesis this week and next week. Um, just to kind of intro, intro this a little bit and just tell you a little bit about myself. If you don't know me, my name's Terry Irwin. Um, I am one of the deacons here at UBC, deacon of Bookstall, so I love books. Um, I decided a couple of months ago that my son, who's nine, is kind of at that age where now is a great time for us to, to for me to introduce him to the Lord of the Rings. Uh, that was a series that I loved as a child that, uh, that I thought, okay, I think he's ta- it's time, I think he's ready. But rather than just watching the movies, I thought, you know, we've we got to do this right. We've got we to gotta start with the books. So we've got to pick the books up and we're going to read through those books together. But of course, if you're going to read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you can't start with the Fellowship of the Ring, the first book in the trilogy. You have to start with what? The Hobbit. The Hobbit. That's right. So if you really want to appreciate Frodo's journey in Lord of the Rings, you've got to go back to the beginning. You've got to go back all the way to Bilbo's journey. Uh, to really understand the story. It's really this perfect introduction and prologue to the story of Lord of the Rings because it gives you all the basic themes and, and everything that you're going to see in Lord of the Rings, but in this kind of seed form. And it really prefigures everything that's going to happen in that story. And so that's what we've been doing for the last several weeks. We've been working through uh, The Hobbit. And we, we just finished it a few weeks ago. And we're a few chapters now into Fellowship of the Ring. And needless to say, you know, over the last few days as we've been reading through it, my son is just hooked on the story. And he loves it because those seeds, those story seeds that we, we, we found in The Hobbit, they're kind of growing now. And he's starting to see the bigger picture of where the story is headed and where it might be ending. And he's, he's always excited and asking me questions about what's going to happen with this. And I can't believe that little ring has such significance. And so he's, he's super excited, but, uh, but that excitement really has been stoked by us going back and really looking at the beginning of this story, as simple as it may seem. And it reminds me in a lot of ways of uh, the experience of, of reading the book of Genesis itself. As I've been uh, preparing for this lesson over the past few weeks and really thinking about that and realizing, you know, in a lot of ways, Genesis is exactly that. It's this beautiful, wonderful prologue for not just uh, the Old Testament, but really the story of redemption that we find in Scripture itself. And all of those major types and shadows and themes that we're going to see through this semester as we go through the Old Testament, they're really there in Genesis in in this seed-like form. Um, Can anyone tell me, uh, or tell us, I should say, what are some examples that you can think of in Genesis of of something that we see in Genesis that becomes a major theme or a major idea throughout the rest of Scripture? Sin. Sin? Yep. What else? Yeah, how so? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we even see that in 
And several times in the New Testament, that's alluded to. Anything else? Disobedience and lying. Yep. What about in any of the events that we're going we're gonna to see in the book of Genesis? The power of God to restore his creation. Yep. His faithfulness. Yeah. Yeah, so we, yeah, absolutely. Those are all true. All of those things are, are themes that we're going to see really for the first time in the book of Genesis. And they're themes that the Bible then will then develop into these massive uh, pictures of, of who God is, who we are, and, and what God is doing in the story of redemption. And so as we consider this book over the next couple of weeks, um, I, I hope really that we can gain a greater appreciation uh, for just how much Genesis is doing to help us understand and appreciate the rest of the Old Testament and just the Bible in general. You know, I hope we're like, you know, my son, as we start to go along, we're excited about the way the story is developing. We want to see where things are going because we, we know how things began. Um, now, I will warn you up front that the chapters we're going to look at this morning at first glance seem very grim. They're, they're some of the most unpleasant pleasant for me chapters in all of Scripture. But for all its low points, I hope that this morning that we'll see that above all, Genesis is actually a book of hope. Um, it's a book that, that really looks past, it looks to the past in order to propel us forward in hope and anticipation for that great day when our own story of redemption will come to its consummation. And with that said, uh, this week we're going to begin by looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and the next week we'll be looking at chapters 12 through 50. And we've kind of broken this up this way because it really fits the structure of the story that Genesis itself is telling. So first we'll see that in chapters 1 through 11 we kind of have this this prologue for all of creation and all of humanity. And then it's the story that we're going to be looking at this morning, the story of how things were supposed to be, what went wrong, and yet a story ultimately of hope that gives us a glimpse into God's character and his plan to make things right. Uh, but then next week, we'll see that, that chapters 12 through 50, they really sort of serve as Israel's own prologue, their own backstory, as we see God graciously calling Abraham, making promises of redemption through him, blessing him and sustaining his seed in order to build a people for himself for his purposes of redemption. But as I said this morning, we're going to focus on us in some sense. We're going to focus on those first 11 chapters. And as we do that, I want to keep in mind what this story is telling us, not just about ourselves, but about God and about who He is and what He is doing. And if I could sum these uh, chapters up, I think it would be this, this way, that chapters 1 through 11 really tell us this story of God's kingdom purposes and how they're being preserved through His justice and mercy despite humanity's fall into sin and rebellion. So that's the main idea that we're going to see in, in Genesis 1 through 11 this morning, that God's kingdom purposes are preserved through his justice and mercy despite humanity's fall into sin and rebellion. So let's look at that together and let's see what hope and what uh, amazing things we can find about God's character on display here in these chapters. Of course, the story begins with the beginning, the beginning of all things. In chapters 1 and 2, we find the story uh, not only of creation, but we also find out some key things about God. Looking at those chapters, and, and if you've read them and you've considered them, um, what do these two chapters reveal about God's nature and His character? What do you see there? 
And you will be well served if you are flipping through us through, through this with me, because I'm going to hopefully ask a couple of these questions. But if you're familiar with, with Genesis 1 and 2, what, what are some things we see revealed about God there? Yeah, there's an order to how he does things. God doesn't just create, he orders, he, he categorizes, he shapes, right? Everything doesn't just come out the way that it's supposed to be. We see God creating and separating and shaping and naming and classifying. Absolutely. What else? Yep, he separates light from darkness. Yeah. What else? Yeah, who's, who's there with God in chapter 1 for most of it? Is anybody with him doing any of that? Yeah? Yeah, Jesus. But, but we're not, we don't come into the picture until the end, right? Most of chapter 1, it's, it's God doing this. Yeah, it's only him. And he's the one separating. He's the one dividing. He's the one naming. He's the one in the Spirit of God. Yep. And he's the one declaring what is good, right? So over and over again, we see this refrain that, that God is declaring things good. So I think we're seeing here that, that, yeah, God's the creator. God is the sustainer. He's the ruler. And he's the righteous judge of all things, right? That's the big, clear takeaway we have from chapters 1 and 2. God has created all things, but he creates, he shapes, he provides, he categorizes, he names, he rules, he judges. He alone declares good from bad, separating light from darkness. And that over and over again, we see that refrain, and God saw it, and it was good to him, right? And that's going to be a key thing that we're going to see, that, that it's God, as creation is being shaped, who says and judges and says, yes, that's good, right? And so what's, what else is implied in all that? Well, it's God is before all things, right? He exists before this creation. He's above all things. He's not dependent on his creation, right? He's eternal. He's transcendent. He's self-sufficient. So we're we're learning big, massive things about who God is here. Uh, but we're not just learning about who God is. What do we see as we move to the end of chapter 1 and 2? What are we learning about ourselves? What was our original nature and our original role in this good creation? What do we see there? Image bearers. Yeah. Yeah, our original nature, as, as, as it's described... There's where we were image bearers. We're made in God's image. God made us in His image and did what? He declared us good. Just like He, he created the other things and declared them good. God made us in His image and, and blessed the man and the woman and said, they are good. So God declared them good. And uh, you know we see this picture of humanity as this kind of crown of God's created order. Man, man alone is made in, God ima- is God, in God's image to reveal God's character to creation. But it's not just the, the way they're made. God also gives humanity a special role. What does that role entail? What do we see there? What is God calling them to do? Dominion over the fish. Yep. Dominion over the fish, over the sea. He, he's calling them to, to be fruitful, to multiply over the face of the earth. So, so the, the implication here is we're made in God's image to reveal Him and we're, we're to take these attributes which He's instilled in us and, and shine His character over His creation. We're to fill His good creation with His glory as we, as we likewise, in the same way that we see God, the things that we see God doing in chapter 1, it's, it's, it's amazing because you kind of see Adam doing some of these same things. He's, he's naming. 
and he's categorizing the animals in chapter two. And so this similar work of, of shaping creation and cultivating creation is given to man and to, and to Adam and his wife. And they're called in this unique uh, nature that God has given them as image bearers to do this unique function of cultivating creation. And, and you see this sort of starting in that picture of the garden. The garden is that, that sort of starting place where they're to be fruitful, multiply over the face of the earth, and, and have dominion over it. And the picture here, it's, it's not just you know, an organizational or uh, a functional reality. It's really a spiritual reality as much as anything. It, man is to act as a king and a priest, mediating the image of God to creation. Uh, the goal of man's calling in these verses is, is ex- best expressed in Habakkuk in a prophecy there, in Habakkuk 2.14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I think that's the idea here, that ultimately man was intended to establish this worldwide kingdom uh, that, that was meant to image and glory God in a worshipful way. It's the idea that we were to turn creation into this, this temple that was, that was to honor God as we, we went about cultivating and, and God seeing the cultivation, seeing the work of our hands and saying, I, it's good. I, it's good. What you've done is good. And all of this to, to bring God's glory. Ultimately, it's this, this picture of God's people under God's rule for God's glory in this place that God has created and called good. And that's this original state that we see that was, that was held out there, that's prefigured for us there, this hope of a of a life that is blessed in perfect worship and divine fellowship under the the lordship of our creator and to his glory as he sustains us, provides for us, and he's honored with the work of our hands. That's the, that's the hope and that's the image that's and the vision that's held out here. Of course, this is all driven home in chapters two in chapter two, verses one through 17. Read along with me if you have a, a Bible there with you. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we see, you know, three things really here. We see God's provision, we see a prohibition. And then we see a warning. So we see that God has provided Adam and his wife with everything they need to accomplish their task, right? He says, you you can have anything, any of the the trees that I've given you. You're well supplied. But he does does, uh, say that there's one tree that they're prohibited from eating, and that's the tree of life, or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he warns them if they do this, they will surely die. What, what's, the, what's, the, what's the issue here? Why is this happening? Why is, is this like a magic tree? Is this uh, some kind of tease that God is offering them here? What's the point of all this? Well, well far from any of that, I think the point here is this. In, in the context of what we lo- that we're looking at, God is making clear to Adam and his wife that their existence and their commission that he's given them, it's entirely dependent on him. Right? He alone is the source of life, and He alone has the right to determine what is good and what is bad. And they're to, they're to carry out this task under His authority, under, under His judgment. He is the supreme judge. And to take that for themselves, to, to reject 
His place as their God is to reject life itself. And that's the idea here that God is getting at. If you, if you reach for this, you are rejecting me as your creator, your sustainer, and your judge. And, and the result of that will surely be death. But tragically, this is the very thing that happens, right? That we see this in chapter 3. What lie does the serpent offer them? Be like God. Yeah, that they'll be like God. What else does he say to them? How will they be like God? They won't die. They won't die. What else will they be able to? Knowing good and evil. Yeah. So he, he's offering them the very, he's, the very thing that God's told them isn't the case, right? He's undercutting. He Right. Yeah, equal to or at least better. So the idea here is it's, it's undercutting the very thing that, that God has communicated by, by, by this prohibition and the provision and the warning that he gave them. Right. The serpent saying, yeah, if, if actually, you know, far from what God said, if you take of this tree, you actually will be like him and you will be able to discern good from evil. And worst of all, you're not going to die. You'll still you'll still have life. So it's a, it's a fundamental severing of the point that God's made. The serpent, who, who Revelation describes as the devil, has, is saying very clearly to them, you can be like God. You don't have to be his, his creatures. And, and he knows it, and he's trying to hide that from you. And if you just take hold of it, you, you've got that. You'll be able to judge things on your own. You won't need him, and you won't, you'll be fine. You'll be alive. Tragically, though, that was not the case. This is a direct assault on God's character and God's promises. And in the rest of chapter 3, and honestly the rest of this book and really the whole Bible, we see the consequences of this act. Far uh, from becoming gods, what, what, is, what do we see? What happens to them? What's the first picture that we're given of them? They don't look much like gods, do they? They're naked and they're ashamed. Yeah, I don't imagine too many gods in that position huddled with fig leaves around them. Yeah, naked and ashamed. And, and God finds them, and of course, He pronounces a curse of enmity on all three. Enmity between the man and his wife, enmity between the man and the ground, and then enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But even though this is a curse, uh, there's a lot here that gives us hope in the face of this rebellion. I mean, right off the bat. First, um, we see that despite this rebellion, God is clearly not choosing to utterly destroy or forsake them. Death's going to come, but for now they get to live. That's the clear implication here. God doesn't say, okay, I told you death. This is it. We're done. You've rejected me. No, the, the curse itself is an implication that they will continue on. Second, though they've rejected their commission, God clearly hasn't rejected that. Yes, there's going to be hardship and enmity and death now. But God expects them to still be fruitful and multiply, right? That all of these, this, this pronouncement of curse, it implies that they're still going to be fruitful and to multiply and to cultivate creation. He could have put an end to the whole thing right then and there. But he doesn't. And the curse shows us that. God's not done yet. And that's an important theme that I want us to hang on to. God is not done with them yet. And then third, of course, in, in this promise of enmity between uh, the serpent, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, we find what has often been con- called the proto-evangelium, or the first telling of the good news of the gospel. Here God promises to raise up a man from the woman who will do battle with the serpent and win 
That's the picture there in, in 315. This promised serpent crusher who will be bruised, whose heel will be bruised, but who will crush the head of the serpent. And so that shows us that God intends to put things right. right? He intends to undo what has happened here. God is not done with his aim to build a people for himself and a kingdom for himself. Even though Adam and his wife failed to banish the serpent when he came in with his lies, because that was part of their responsibility, even though they failed to do that, God is saying one of their sons will do what they should have done. And this is a sort of mustard seed of promise, right? It's a small little thing right now. But it's a, it's a mustard seed of a promise that's going to grow up into a glorious tree of redemption, right? What a glorious day it was when you read in Luke 10, 17-19, when Jesus' disciples returned with joy after being sent out by Him, saying in you know, almost astonishment, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and lightning and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. With those words, Jesus is telling his disciples, he's the serpent crusher. He has come. That old deceiver has finally been dethroned. Of course, the reason all this can happen is because God chooses not to cut off the whole thing right there, right? If the whole project ends, if God says, well, this was a big failure, you're done, this whole thing is done, no more seed, no more commission, what do we lose? What, do we, what happens if, if, if the Bible stops here? Yeah, nothing. <laughs> we're, we're doomed, <laughs> or we don't even exist, and Adam's doomed, and the whole thing's just... A mess, and what do we not see about what do we not see about God if everything stops here? Yeah, that He doesn't. We don't know of God's love and His mercy. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, we don't see that God is not just a God of justice because we would see that, but we wouldn't see that God is also a God of mercy and salvation. Exactly. So God is merciful to them. Uh, he covers them. In this, we see this picture in the way He provides for their nakedness. He covers them. Uh, he, he covers their shame. He preserves their lives. He preserves this commission, though it is now fraught with a curse. Uh, and then He gives them this promise. And they're sent on their way in exile from the garden. But, you know, that's the, the thing that, that we have to see here. Isn't just the, it's easy to get fixated on, man, this, is, this, sound, this really looks bad. Things look really bad here. But I think the picture that we're supposed to take away is not primarily one of things are bad. It's, wow, God's up to something. Like, this is headed somewhere. Yeah, this is not the it, end. If you don't mind. Yeah. It says, cursed is the ground because of you in the ESV, I believe. Mm-hmm. KJV will say, cursed is the ground for your sake. Mm. I think it's important for us to understand the cursing of the ground is for us so we can see the, the, the toil of sin yeah. that we might turn to the Savior you're talking about right now. That's good. Yeah. And so that curse was actually a blessing in a sense. Yeah, I think that, that fits well in with what we see in, in Romans 8. You know, Paul says God subjected creation to futility uh, for the sake for whom, yeah, he's talking about us there. Absolutely. Um, any other questions? Any other thoughts before we move on?
also foreshadowing or showing that in sin that blood is required for cleansing. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's certainly a yeah, absolutely. I think there's certainly a seed of that you're seeing there. This this idea that sacrifice needs to be made for the covering of sin and, and that sacrifice is, you know, it, it on the one hand it's gonna prefigure some of the stuff we're gonna see later on in Leviticus. On the other hand, it, it prefigures Christ, right? It's going to show us ultimately the covering that Christ is for us. Any other thoughts? Any other questions on these first three chapters? All right. Now, so there's a lot of hope here. But again, before things get better, they get a whole lot worse. So as we move into chapters uh, 4 through 6-8, um, though we've seen some glimmers of hope, I'm not going to lie, these chapters get pretty dark. There's some pretty dark things here. Lots of sin, lots of death. We see, of course, the first death with is what? What's the first death? Cain. So it's not just, it's not just a, a, it's not God's judgment. Cain slays Abel, right? So even though God was the one who pronounced death as a judgment, it's not God who carries out that, that judgment first. Who is it? It's man. And is it right? No, it's not right. He murders his brother because he's jealous of him. So even the first death, it's, it's a picture of the twistedness of humanity. It's not God executing this judgment, but man and doing it wrongfully so. And death is this constant re- refrain that we see throughout these chapters. You know, we see... Cain's descendant Lamech, who's boasting, you know, if Cain gets avenged for his, for, you know, being a murderer and someone trying to come after him, well, me, seven times that, I'm, I'm even better. And, and this refrain, it picks up in chapter five, where we read in Adam's genealogy of his descendants over and over and over again. Uh, each time we read of, of someone being bored, born at the end, we read, and he died, and he died, and he died. Ten times, and he died, and he died. So despite the lies of the serpent, it's clear that death is a reality. That they can't choose to be apart from God and not have life, or to have life. So death is a reality here. it's, It's kind of being put in our face so that we can't get away from it. Of course, we know that. We know that that death is inevitable. That's that statement, the two things that are inevitable, death and taxes. Ten out of ten people die. Oh, I think maybe as Enoch would take issue with that. But um, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, so death isn't all we see, though, right? Death is, is this repeated thing we're seeing over and over again here. But we also see just this, this repeated refrain of sin. As we follow Cain's story, um, his lineage becomes this kind of twisted version of the commission that God gave to Adam, Right? So rather than repenting before God and, and humbling himself, he complains and he runs from God's presence. So sort of like, I can't even deal with this because God doubles down on the curse and says, not only is it going to be hard for you to work the ground, it is going to be impossible for you to work the ground. You won't be able to do it. Instead of turning to God and going, how am I going to live? I, I'm, I need you. I need your help. Cain says, fine. And he runs away and he goes and he builds his own city, his own kingdom. And we see this, we trace this out. Things are just are nasty as we follow his story. His descendants build this kingdom for their own glory apart from God. And by the time we get to chapter 6, 
Humanity has filled the earth not with God's glory, but with what? Violence. Violence. Wickedness. Pride. Sexual immorality. All these things. And then in, in 6... Didn't take long. Doesn't seem like it, no. Then in 6, 5 through 7, we read this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I made them. So, you know, we we read these words and we see man is totally, pervasively, continually, inwardly sick with sin and rebellion. And it looks like God's had enough. You know, we've we've seen at at first glance like this wonderful picture of God's mercy and we're we're brought to these, these words and we think, okay, yeah, I guess God's had enough. And yet, once again, there's still hope, right? Just in that very next verse, but we'll get to that. There's hope in, in, on multiple levels. Even though these, these, these verses and these chapters are full of darkness, there's still glimmers of hope here. Uh, yes, Cain and his descendants are filling the earth with evil, but if you, if you look back, there's little pictures, little glimmers of hope. At the end of chapter 4 and 5, these ho- uh, glimmers of hope begin to emerge. At first, you know, we think, wow, you know, Abel, is, is, he's faithful, and, and God is pleased with him, and Maybe he's the, he's the one through whom, he, maybe he's the serpent crusher. Maybe he's the one who's going to undo this thing. But of course, you know, he's cut off. His brother murders him. And yet God in his mercy and his grace, he blesses Adam with, with another son, with Seth. And as we read of Seth's line, we see these glimmers of hope, right? We see Seth's son Enosh. And, and we're told that in his day, people began to, to call on or worship the name of the Lord. So there are some who are, are worshiping the Lord. And then we see this continues with, with Enosh's descendant Enoch, who not only walks with God, but in a curious way is said to just not be anymore because he's taken by God. I don't entirely know what that means, but it seems like a clear break in that and he died pattern there. But finally, ten generations down the line, we come to Noah. And we're told that Noah found favor in God's eyes was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, who, like Enoch, walked with God. And as we come to this next section, we're going to find that God's purposes of redemption are now going to come specifically through this man and his family. So in these chapters, we're seeing a kind of trajectory emerging of, of sort of two lines, two, two emerging sort of lines. And we, we saw something of this back in God's uh, the statement that God made about the enmity, right? We saw the, the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And in that case, we might be wondering, okay, is he talking about actual like serpents? And is he just talking about a, a, this sort of enmity between man and snakes? And I think that's not the case. Here we're starting to see that, that we can categorize sort of this line of, of those who remain faithful to God. And then this line like we see in Cain of those who really follow after the serpent, who, who like the serpent, are filling the, the world with lies, with deception. And I think that's the idea that we're seeing here. And, and through one line, we're going to see constantly judgment. And then the other, we're going to see salvation. And this is something we're going to see over and over and over and over and over again as we go through the Old Testament. Any, other th- any thoughts on this before we go- move on? Any questions?
If not, I have one. I want to ask you guys this. Is, having said what I just said, is, is Seth's line, this, this, this line of the faithful, is it inherently more righteous than Cain? Do you think so? Is this a biological thing, right? Because that's the, the temptation we might feel at first. The lines are being drawn along those, those biological lines. So is it, is it the case that Seth's line is just superior? How do we know that? Spoilers, how do we know that? Which verse is this? Oh, it's not a specific verse. I'm, just, I'm asking a question of how do we know that, that the issue here, this division between the, the seed of the woman and the serpent, the faithful and the unfaithful line, that it's, it's not a matter of one line being sort of superior biologically to the other. How do we know that? What are we going to see? I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I want to see if you guys can too. That's true. Yeah, I think that's ultimately really what makes this line unique. It's not the, the line itself, but it's the, the end point. But there's, I think, a clue that we're going to get into, and we'll, we'll get into it now, and I think that it helps temper that. And, and that's gonna, we're going to see that as we come through the other side of this judgment and this salvation. So we'll, we'll revisit that in a second, but keep that in your mind. So we're, we have these glimmers of hope, and we come to chapters 6 through 9. We see that God's purposes of redemption are going to be expressed in two ways, right? Through judgment and salvation. So God is going to exercise judgment. We've seen that already. And the flood is going to serve as this kind of decreation process, right? It, it, it harkens back in a lot of ways to a reversal of everything we saw in chapter 1. God is unseparating the waters. He's, he's, he's unseparating. He's, the, the dry land is being covered. It's being sort of undone. And in the process, this kingdom of sin and death that Cain has built, it's being wiped away. It's being cleared off the stage. And this is an act of judgment, but it's also an act of mercy, right? Not just because um, God is, is wiping away all of this, but because God, in His mercy, says to Noah that He's going to preserve him. He's going to save him and his family, right? So we see that, that Noah is, receives this mercy from God that's on display in the salvation that we see in the ark and the creatures that, that he calls Noah to bring with him on the ark. So yeah, God is, God is clearly at a point where he wants to exercise judgment over humanity, wipe things clean, but is he done with us? No, still not done with us, which is good news, which is hopeful. And that's the picture that we see here. This is a picture of hope. The fact that he would single Noah out and say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get rid of all this but I'm going to keep you. We're going to start over. And that's really the picture that we see in chapters 8 and 9. It's a, it's a new beginning. In a lot of ways, this, these chapters mirror Genesis 1 and 2 in very significant ways. We're seeing the waters once again separating and receding and the lands taking shape again. And we have this sort of new creation. Only here, God is promise, promising to, to never curse the ground again on account of man or to never sweep every living thing away. Instead, God promises to preserve this new creation and to provide even agricultural stability through the seasons. As long as the earth remains, seed time, harvest, the seasons, He's he's promising man, I'm going to uphold those things. I'm going to preserve you. And I think the implication here that we're going to get to in a second is that God's saying, "I'm I'm going to preserve you in spite of what's going to happen. So God knows what's going to happen. God knows that sin and death... This is not the end of sin and death. And yet, in God's mercy, 
in this covenant that he makes with, with this sort of new Adam, this new commission that he gives to him. He's saying to him, all right, I'm not done with you and I'm not going to do this again and I'm going to endure. We're going to endure with mercy and patience. We're going to uphold this thing. And, that, and so Noah is pictured as this kind of new Adam, right? He, he, he worships God. He's blessed by God. He's commissioned once again. And this new commission, it's repeated, those, those same statements, that he's blessed, and then God calls him to multiply over the face of the earth and to fill it. But in this post-Genesis 3 world, things are different in this covenant, right? For one, if you look at what God says throughout these chapters, it's clear death is here to stay. And I think you see this most principally in the additional responsibility that God gives to Noah and to us as his descendants. What is the, the new responsibility that God adds in this covenant? We're not just to multiply and fill. What else are we responsible for? It's, I'll give you a hint. It's something God's saying he's not going to do anymore. Well, not just that. I think it's, a, it's an implication of what God's promises are here. So he, he specifically says to, to Noah that it is now man's responsibility to deal with, with murder. In other words, God's saying, unlike when Cain murdered his brother and I doubled down on the curse, I'm not doing that again. It's your responsibility now. You're going to deal with yourselves. So God puts in this additional covenant this responsibility that we have to judge ourselves, to execute this judgment upon ourselves. He gives us this responsibility. Rather than cursing and doubling down on the curse over and over and over again until we can't do anything but murder, God's saying to, to them, we're going to hold ourselves accountable for the evil that we commit. And in this we have what? Really the foundations of government. This is what it means for us to govern ourselves as people in this post-Genesis 3 world. And we're sort of now all trying to figure out the implications of what all this means. But at the most bare minimum, it means that God does expect us to hold each other accountable for things like murder. God expects us to hold each other accountable for how we govern ourselves. Right? And that's the image that we have here. And yet, give me one second. The, the implication here, right, is that death and even murder are going to continue. That's not, that's not a hopeful picture at first. God seems to be conceding to the existence of death and murder here. And yet I think that, you know, there is still hope here, right? Not only in the fact that God has preserved Noah and his family and given them this new creation and this new covenant. You know, there's all these questions that, we're have, that we might have right here. Is, is Noah... Is he the one that's going to set things right? Is, is he the serpent crusher? Is, is he going to, in this new creation, under this new covenant, is he going to do what Adam should have done? Well, yes and no. No, he's not the serpent crusher. That's right. But at the same time, God has singled Noah out for his purposes. And God is going to accomplish his purposes of redemption through Noah's line. And that is, that's something that we're going to see as we, we unfold the rest of this picture. But for now, this promise to preserve humanity through this, grace of act of, uh, this gracious act of salvation, it's moved one step closer, 
Yes, he's not the serpent crusher, but we're one step closer. But if chapters um, 8 and 9 are a kind of mirror of chapters 1 and 2, then in 9 and 11 we kind of find a mirror image of chapters 3 through 6. The whole process kind of plays out very similarly once again. We see again sin, shame, curse, rebellion, all of it unfolding on the earth. In the story of Noah's drunkenness, we see these familiar elements that we saw in Genesis 3. A fruit is abused. This leads to shame and nakedness for the covenant head. We see in Ham the wayward son whose line is cursed and set at enmity with his brothers. It's all playing out like Adam and Cain 2.0. And of course, in the story of the Tower of Babel, we find the descendants of this new Adam once again refusing to establish this kingdom, refusing to honor the commission that's given to them by God. Rather than filling the face of the earth with, with God's glory, rather than doing what God commanded, they gather in one place. God commanded them, spread out, fill the earth. And they say, nope, we're going to stay right here. We're going to build a tower straight up to you. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to defy what you've said. But I think here's where things are, get really interesting, right? Because we've had this promise, this new covenant that God's made where he said, I'm not going to do this again to you. And now this is where God gets to sort of put the money where his mouth is. God gets to, he could very easily go, oh, this is all playing out the same and we're done. But he doesn't do that, right? Rather than judging them, it's rather ingenious, I think, what God does. He doesn't destroy them, but he does come down and he foils their plans and he furthers his, right? By, by confusing their language and scattering them over the face of the earth. So though we have not just one wicked nation, one wicked kingdom now, but a host of nations that all turn aside from God into idolatry, as we're going to see, especially next week, God is going to use this for His purposes of redemption. So in all of the, these things, I hope you're starting to see that there's a, there's a kind of pattern that's emerging in these chapters. It's a, it's a pattern of covenant-making, covenant-breaking, judgment, renewal, restoration. It's happening over and over again. In one hand, on the one hand, this cycle is kind of frustrating. It's kind of frustrating just to see this happening over and over and over and over again. And if it's not frustrating to you now, I think by the time we get to the end of this semester or the end of next semester, it'll be frustrating to you then. Because as we go through the Old Testament, it's one of those things that over and over again we see this cycle play out. And we think, when are we going to stop doing this? And yet, in spite of this fact that man clearly, this problem of sin and death is clearly here to stay, and it's clearly going to be the case that, that this sin and death will ultimately prevent us from establishing the kingdom ourselves. In spite of this, I hope you see that there's, there's hope in the mercy and the judgment of God that we've seen over and over again in these first 11 chapters. I, I want us to walk away here with a picture of, of, of this pattern that's, that's pointing us forward, that's showing us that, yes, sin, we should expect to see sin doing this over and over and over again. But we should also expect to see God being faithful, being merciful, and being patient over and over and over again. And that is what I hope you take away from these chapters more than anything, is hope. Hope that as depressing as things might get at times, 
and as depressing as they might get in our own lives, in our own sin, I, I know this is something I need to hear constantly. You know, I love that song that we sing, Though our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. And I think that is just such a beautiful picture of, of Genesis 1 through 11. Our sins are many in these chapters, but His mercy is so much more. God's justice and mercy will win out in the end. You know, I love that, that line that's repeated over and over again in the Psalms. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And we're already starting to see that. We're already starting to see that reality. And God is going to win out in the end. And His mercy is, is what we, we, we want to fixate on here. His hope, the hope that we have in His mercy and His justice. That God's going to, He's going to outlast us in our sin. So coming full circle, I, I want to leave you with this quote. Um, it's probably my favorite quote from Lord of the Rings. Um, I will say this is not in the book. This is in the movie, but that's okay. It's better in the movie than it is in the book. But <clears throat> um, there's a scene where at the end of the two towers where Frodo is just lamenting the evil and the darkness that, that is around them, and, and he's lamenting just what lays before them. And he says to his faithful companion, Sam, I can't do this, Sam. And Sam says, I know. It's all wrong. By all rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. Sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. Praise God we know how the real story ends, right? Although we read in these chapters of a lot of darkness, we know that that, that darkness passes, that that kingdom will come because of God's unfailing justice and His mercy. And then in Revelation 21, 1-5, we read of even sweeter words. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud cry, a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And I think that's, that's the picture that I want us to walk away from these chapters with. In spite of everything we see here, God is making all things new. God is committed to His purposes, and His mercy and His justice will see us through the Old Testament as we walk through. And more than anything, I want you guys to see this week and next week how much this book is, is really pointing to that reality over and over again of God's justice and His mercy and God's hope and the hope that we have and who He is. Any questions? Any thoughts before, we, before we're done?
Nothing? We got so many tricky things in these 11 chapters. Do we manage to just skate right over them? I'm simply glad he's mine. Amen. Yep. God wiped out the whole world except for Noah because Noah was righteous. Right. It's because God found, you know, Noah found favor in God's eyes. Yeah. It was God who initiated that righteousness Amen. in Noah. So. Yeah. It's God's mercy that took that initiative. We're seeing that over and over, that it's God's the one who's taking that initiative to be gracious and merciful, and we see that in the favor that he shows to Noah, which, yeah, by the way, I think that's really the answer there for us. We, we whittle down to Noah, and is sin gone? No. So, it, lest we're tempted to think, okay, we, we've got the faithful line here with Noah. So, it must be that, that this is the superior line. I think very quickly God disabuses us of that notion in Noah's own life and then in the life of his descendants and says, no, 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 no. There's sin in the faithful and the faithless. We're both, we're both on the wrong side of things. And the difference maker is, is not our righteousness, but it's God's mercy. It's God's grace towards us. Absolutely. Joseph, yeah, we'll get to him next week. That is the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great way to, to put a cap on it. Unless you guys have any other thoughts, any other questions. I know there's a lot of really, I, I prepared because there's some tricky stuff in here. But you guys are really, you're good? So how do you, when you come to your passage, like from the beginning of chapter 6. Yeah. Some things you're like, what does this mean? Yep. So in thinking of what we're going through, this whole overview of the Old Testament, the story that the Bible is telling you, how do you take passages like that, yeah. tricky, and fit that into the story? Great question. So... I think the first thing to do is to, to, to ask that question, meaning you, you don't want to get fixated on, on the particulars and so much so that you lose the bigger picture. Um, and this, the, the thing you're referring to, I would guess, would be the, the sons of God, the daughters of men, the Nephilim, that thing, yeah. Um, the, the first, I think, issue is you keep that bigger picture in mind, and then you start to ask, like, what purpose is this serving within the narrative? Um, that, that specific... That's probably the trickiest thing in here, so we'll get it. Um, <clears throat> that specific story, I think, serves two purposes. Um, the most immediate purpose that it serves 
Uh, it is Which story? I'm sorry. Uh, the sons of God, daughters of men, the Nephilim. Yeah. Uh, let me find it real quick. Yeah. So I'll just read it. Uh, when man began to multiply in the face of the land, the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim, which just means the, the fallen ones, were on the earth in those days and also afterwards. When the sons of God came to the daughters of, came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So there's a lot of like theories about what's happening here. There's two primary theories. This is either sort of uh, kings, like the, the line of, of Cain that we just talked about. This is sort of a, a maybe a council of, of really powerful kings who are taking wives from the, the, the godly line, the line of, of um, Seth, and they're marrying them, and God is looking at this and going, oh, I don't like this. The other more popular predominant view is that these uh, sons of God is a reference to angels, and that there seems to be some kind of um, sexual union happening here between angels and, and, and women. There's no real description as to how that, that could work. Um, now, I think there's either way, the, the purpose of the story is pretty much the same, and that is to show the, the depravity of where things are at. So chapter 6 is really this sort of culminating point of things are bad. Things are really, really bad. And so that when we come and read God's word, you know, God's statement about, I'm, I'm just, I regret that I have made man. These are all things that are part of this picture that show us, yeah, yeah, things are really bad. I understand where God's coming from. And I think certainly we could see how either of those stories, you know, in some sense portrays that idea. Um, the, the, the sort of, the thing I will say, I, I go back and forth on those two options. I am currently leaning towards the second. Um, yeah, and we can talk about that another, you know, in another second section. But um, some of this has to do with the fact that the sons of God is a term that almost universally refers to angels in the Bible. So it's really hard to get around. Um, and, and the way that this is picked up later in the Bible and used seems to directly allude to the idea that, that that's what other biblical authors are interpreting this situation as. Now, the real rub, the real issue here is this, this question of the Nephilim. And, and I think there's a mis, I would say a misconception in that second view that, that this union results in sort of the, some kind of offspring of giants that, ha, that are happening here. But I think if you look at what the author's actually doing, he's actually disabusing us of that idea. So what he's saying is that these, these men of renown, these, these fallen ones, these, these Nephilim, he, he very specifically says they were already there prior to this event. They were there you know, when this happened and then after. So I think his point is to say these two things don't have anything to do with each other. And I, I think the, it's a sort of polemic probably addressing like a, a uh, mythology that they, that they had bought into that, you know, someone would say, oh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, really, I'm a really tall and powerful. That's because I've come from this, this union of angels and men. And so I, I, I'm godlike and you should worship me. And so I, I think the idea here is, <clears throat> is, that God, is that the Bible is basically saying, that's not what happened. Yes, so, something really bad happened. 
But that's not who these guys are. These aren't, you don't need to see them as some sort of half human, half angel thing. Somebody who Yeah, it, I mean, it's possible. Yeah, like but Right. Yeah, something from there. Yeah, well, I think either, either way, in that case, like God, God sees fit to deal with all that himself here. We see that God does cut off this line, and yet he also preserves another line. You know, we, we saw that. So either way, I think in, in the purposes of a story like this, you, you do want to ask, like, wait, what does this have to do? Because it, it can be so easy to get oh, this is interesting and intriguing and get sort of caught up in the details and lose the forest for the trees, really. Good question. I knew that was going to come, so I was just waiting for it. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. In chapter, uh, you know, verse 1 of, of Genesis, we see that God has been around from the beginning. Mm. He can speak things into existence. Mm. Um, there's an order to him, as, as we've seen today, in what he does. He's got limits as to what he, 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 he makes us, but mm. his limits. Mm. And as we go through, um, even in Genesis, um, we will learn, for example, um, in his interactions with Abraham, um, where he says that a people will come from you and they will actually go to another land and be afflicted for 400 years. Mm-hmm. And we begin to see that God knows everything, mm. past, present, and future. Yeah. And it's an important thought here because... We don't know that yet. I mean, it's not revealed yeah. when we get to chapter 6. And when it says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart, mm. um, a simple reading of that might imply, you might, might right. figure out that, um, that this caught God off guard. He mm-hmm. didn't know it would happen in advance. Right. And yet, the rest of Scripture informs us. And, yeah, it. Absolutely. That yes, he was sorry, mm-hmm. um, but he knew it would happen. Mm. He knew it from the beginning. Yeah, and I think I think you do see um, something of that in the promise, right? Because there's there is uh, I think one implication you can draw away from that is if God can say, "Hey, there's this serpent crusher coming," God can see something that's going to happen. That's that's happened, and Adam even sort of recognizes that and when he names his wife Eve mother of the living he's sort of saying to God okay you said we're going to live uh, I believe you um, and yeah you, you see that, that God does see this thing and, I, and that, that's the other probably one of the other more tricky passages in this, in this collection is what does it mean when God comes to this, this point of regret quote unquote and I think you're right to point out that what we know about God here and then really what we know about God for the rest of scripture I don't, I don't think it means that God, you know, as, as we, we'll see later on, God is not a man that he should change his mind. Um, you know, we've, we've seen that verse. So I think rather than speaking to 
like some surprise in God or, or some, God, wow, I can't believe this is happening. Uh, I think God's steady hand is clear throughout these chapters and his purposes are clear. Even, even here, immediately, we see God's plan is still unfolding in Noah. And, and yet I think what, this, what that does show us is, again, just how horrible, horrible things are at this point. That, that God looks at human, humanity and says, this is just absolutely, thoroughly, completely corrupt. And it's meant not necessarily to, to show us you know, some limit in God, but it's meant to show us, it's a contrast, right, to everything we saw in chapter 1. It, this is good, this is good, this is good. And yet now here God is saying, this is not good. This is the opposite of not. This is as bad as bad gets. Yeah, I think it shows that, that there's a lot we could say about that question that, from a theological standpoint, but I think what it does show us is in the picture that we're seeing of Genesis, God is not some far-off, removed deity from these events. God is, is deeply invested and deeply involved. Yeah, God is deeply involved in what's unfolding here, and it, and it matters to God. And God is not just sort of, uh, sort of like a deist, well, things seem pretty bad. Uh, you know, I think the picture here is that God, God cares about what's happening, that God is actively involved in what's happening, and He is working it. And we see that over and over again. Every time things seem to just be going south, it's God who, who really renews and restores and keeps things going and preserves. And we're meant to see that, I think, in these, this picture that God in, in, this, in these chapters is just, like deeply just, but also deeply merciful. And I hope, I hope uh, you see that in the main idea, but I hope that, that you take that away and that that's a source of hope for us. Good deal. Okay, well, I'll pray for us and uh, looking forward to diving into the rest next week. God, we are just, um, we're humbled, uh, we're grateful. Uh, over and over again, Father, in our lo- own lives, we, we're just, we're prone to think that our sin is just, um, it's too much. That your mercy will someday run out. And yet in these chapters, God, we see not just your righteousness, but your, your holiness and your, and your mercy. That you preserve us. That you show grace to us when we don't deserve it. That you have purposed to redeem a people for yourself, for your name's sake. And God, we are, are blessed to be that that people were blessed that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light that yes you are holy but yes you are so good and merciful to us so i pray that we would just um, rejoice and praise you for that reality as we as we consider more uh, here in just a moment about your holiness and yet your your mercy and your redemption we ask that in jesus name amen